So I want people to be able to access the work immediately, no preamble, just to witness something, to experience something, and for that to be open to anybody. Welcome to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. In this podcast, I discuss a guest artist's practice through the lens of a piece of fiction chosen by them. My interest is in being able to open up access to art by bouncing between books, the artwork, and ideas shared between the two, which means something to the artist. To start season two, I'm thrilled to be speaking today with a very talented Jordan Baseman, who has selected Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. I mean, what I like about the book and about the film is that it does not reduce good and evil to simple things. They're not black and white. Jordan Baseman makes short films which tend to focus on a narrator who appears to be spontaneously chatting. They might tell a story or a joke or be tipping out their opinions of life. They are always clear of voice but never straightforward, just like the rest of us. We're all complicated and often a mystery, even to ourselves. We're as much our own destructors as we are our saviors. We judge others while our better selves try not to. We are never all of one thing or another. And somehow, Jordan has the sensitivity and acumen to be able to convey these layers of complexity in his visually rich films. To view them, check out his website at jordanbaseman.co.uk. Welcome, Jordan Baseman, to Art Fictions. Lovely to have you here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, so here is my summary of the book. Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. Not surprisingly, Strangers on a Train begins with two strangers on a train. Guy Haynes, aged 29, is an architect just starting his career, while Charles Anthony Bruno, aged 25 and better known as Bruno, is basically a wealthy, idle drunk. Bruno imposes on Guy and over the course of the train journey they drink together and Bruno confides how much he loathes his father and wants him dead. Guy, on the other hand, has a disastrous marriage and is on his way to sort a divorce from his wife. So Bruno suggests that Guy murder his father and in exchange Bruno will murder Guy's wife Miriam. Guy thinks this is all ridiculous A couple of weeks later, Bruno does indeed carry out Miriam's murder. Partly as a result, Guy's career kicks off with the help of his fiancée, Anne. Anne seems to be from a model family. Everybody is well-adjusted and hugely wealthy and ever so lovely. Then Bruno comes to collect. He taunts Guy until the poor sap feels he's no choice but to murder Bruno's father, which he does with a bullet to the head. Does this solve everything? No. Bruno ups his drinking and becomes obsessed with folding himself into Guy and Anne's lovely life, risking a connection between the two men to become known, which it does. Private Detective Gerard figures out the whole thing and conveniently overhears Guy confess all to Miriam's lover Owen. By this stage, Bruno has already gone down in a blaze of drunken glory, falling overboard on a boat trip and drowning. The end. How was that? Sounds good. Okay. No, no arguments so far. So do you want to tell me why you chose the book? <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> but you chose it straight away. You were like, bang. Yeah, I don't know why I suggested it. It was just the first thing that came into my mind. And so I just thought, well, that's as good as anything else. In that it has a lot of things that I'm interested in it. You know, this expectation of how to live your life and good and evil and right and wrong. But I I guess also just after reading it yesterday, the thing that I think subconsciously I might have suggested it because of the structure. What I like about it a lot is how it is told in a certain kind of manner. The structure exists and it's told in that manner. and You don't really think about that. But it's really only told primarily from two points of view. It's told from Guy's point of view and Bruno's point of view. 
And that's pretty much it. It's only when Guy goes to Anne's house and Bruno shows up and they have a, a wider conversation. And the detective, Gerard, he's the only person with a different perspective or the third perspective. And I think that's really interesting structurally how she manages to create this really dynamic story, this narrative that is pretty much driven from the point of view of two people that you don't really like very much. And I think that's really powerful. And, it, and you are invested in the story and you're invested in the narrative and you do kind of care about them, even though you know that they're not all that likable. Part of my interest in the book, I guess, is the way that the screenplay when it came into being for the film and that Raymond Chandler is credited with the screenplay, although he didn't really have anything to do with it. All of his versions were rejected by Hitchcock and there's none, apparently none of that made it into the final screenplay. Chenze Ormond, O-R-M-O-N-D-E, was her first real screenplay. She was like the ninth person that it went to because Hitchcock had a particular idea of the film. But they sold a big part of the publicity. I don't know if you watched the trailer for the film, is that Raymond Chandler was involved, but he wasn't really involved. Anyway, I don't remember when I very first read it, probably like high school, you know, a million years ago. But it has always stayed with me. And I like Patricia Highsmith a lot. I like the talent of Mr. Ripley. I think those Ripley novels are great. I think that's interesting about the screenplay. I didn't realize that. So this is a woman who's written a screenplay, largely. And it must have been done quite speedily because the book was produced, well, published in 1950, and then the film was 1951. Hitchcock must have got wind of it before it was published, I assume. I don't know. I mean, she was, I think she was 21 when that was published. She was really young, and it was a, a huge bestseller. And so I think it caused a bit of a stir because its premise stretches credibility, perhaps. I keep thinking this about the film and the book, that the context of the time within which it was made was also important. So it's really close to the war. And I think Hollywood was a different place then. It produced things really super quickly then. And if you look at the people involved, the credits of the film, there aren't that many people involved in the production, in the actual physical production of the film. You know, the credits are pretty quick. and it probably wasn't hugely expensive to make. The last scene, that scene in the carousel, apparently is like one of the most complicated scenes that Hitchcock ever filmed. Just because I think that's like a technical thing and a mechanical thing. And that was a real fairground also. That is a pre-existing location. Also, I guess sources of entertainment were limited compared to what they were in 10 years later than that, in 61. When most people in the States had television or were beginning to get television, in 51 people just did not have televisions at home. And the, the movie theater was a different thing. That positioning of context was important to understand. And they, they wanted to capitalize on the success of the novel. You know, she was a 21-year-old from Texas who wrote this pretty dark and unusual, really cruel book. I was so aware of how cruel it is. Like, nobody comes out well, not one person. And, and I was really struck by that rereading, and I thought, between the war, certainly in the States, after the First World War and then the Dust Bowl and the Depression and then the Second World War, we were only just rebuilding then. And I think that life was probably a lot harsher for people than it has been in my lifetime. And I think that harshness or that survival thing or that bluntness or that what I've labeled cruelty is just common. I think Patricia Asmith was the nicest person in the world from what I've read, but I think it's also the, the culture that she was a part of at the time. Speaking of that, I found Bruno's character very plausible. Guy introduces us to him that he has an undersized face, a huge pimple or something in the centre of his forehead, which ends up being a boil, a monstrous shocking thing, bloodshot eyes, stubby lashes, poor teeth, whereas Guy is pitted as, you know, the ideal son that Bruno could have been, whereas Bruno is this, well, suffers from this terrible despair. It's not insanity, but it's the desperate boredom of the wealthy. I would have expected closure, which you get in the film. You don't get in the book. Some sort of redemption, closure, some sort of singularity that ties things up quite neatly. Whereas Patricia Highsmith doesn't give us that. She just gives us, these people are awful and everything turns out awful. I just didn't think it was very typically... Uh, you were going to say you think it was very typically Hollywood? Or something like that? I was actually thinking, I didn't think that was very American, but then we're thinking of Raymond Chandler, who's also quite a complicated writer. But also, again, in that time period, 
Ida Lupino, do you know her? She was a, a star in the 30s and 40s. She was the first female director of a film noir film called The Hitchhiker, and that was in 1951. It's similar in style, in a way, in that it's kind of bluntly told, because I think uh, Strangers on a Train is bluntly told. The language is direct. You know, Bruno's not very nuanced. In the book, he is as a character, in the way that he's constructed, but not as he's portrayed. Anyway, my reason for bringing that film up is that there's no happy ending in The Hitchhiker either. I mean, they get The Hitchhiker in the end, but you can see how damaged everybody is by their encounter with this person. So that like hopeful thing, that kind of closure, that resolution thing, I think that's a late 20th century construct. I was just starting to think about The Wizard of Oz, and maybe there's kind of closure in that. I don't even know if there's closure in that. You know, it's like, it's such a paranoid film. It's like, don't go out, don't meet new people, uh, the world's a dark place, don't go anywhere, everything's at home, everything you need is at home. Even I don't know if the film has closure. The, the book definitely doesn't. What I love about the book is how technology is his downfall, like the telephone is the thing that allows other people to understand what's really happened. I thought that was really, really incredible. I forgot that entirely. And maybe it's because I'm thinking so much of technology because of Zoom and all our interactions now are through these devices. I completely overlooked that as being significant in the book because he's not, he's not careful with technology, that he doesn't understand the technology or that technology exists, whichever way you want to put it. It's the thing that brings him down. Did you find Guy was a plausible character? I think the whole premise is highly unlikely. <laughs> but again, I think having an understanding of context, reminding yourself as the reader or the viewer of the time that the film and the book were made, I think that's important. I think what's interesting about Strangers on a Train, too, is like, don't talk to strangers. People you don't yeah. know are bad. And that's, that's evident in both the film and the book. But, you know, don't go outside of yourself. I don't know if I, I mean, the thing with Bruno in the book made me think of Donald Trump a lot. I thought a lot about Trump. I thought of a lot about a very wealthy person, a very privileged person who was unhappy with their privilege and unhappy with their wealth, but didn't really know how to cope with it or do anything with it. Somebody that wanted to be ambitious and was ambitious, but didn't know where to locate that ambition and was jealous of other people's determination, desire, talent, ambition, and all that other stuff, and wanted to get as close to that as possible. I think what's interesting about the film is that that kind of flipped, because like Guy, the film becomes about celebrity. They're both about celebrity to an extent, because Guy is a celebrity, for lack of a better way to put it, in both. He's more of a celebrity in the film than he is in the book. I think the idea of celebrity and boundaries of privacy, which are very much in the film, Hitchcock definitely was talking about that for sure because I think he's really aware of the potency of news and the potency of image and the potency of narrative and celebrity and he plays with all of those things in real life and in the films. Uh, I thought that Bruno was more plausible in both of them than Guy. I think and you say like if there's closure in more closure in the film but what I didn't like about the film is that Guy He's, he's, he was an accomplice to murder, even with the end. So he got away with it. He did. That was really annoying. In fact, I thought that was picked up in uh, in Woody Allen's Match Point. Did you ever see that? Which is about a tennis player who murders his wife and gets away with it. It's just good luck. But also that sort of... You know, <laughs> is that good luck? <laughs> yeah, well... It, that's what it seemed to be. You know, there's good luck and bad luck. Bad luck, she got murdered. Good luck, he got away with it. You know, there's no predestined, uh, you get what you deserve. There's no... There's no Old Testament judgment. Uh, no, no way. Yeah, well, that, I think that's what's, that's what's great about the book and the film. And what they think they both do is that, you know, we make our own reality. And I think they, you know, obviously they both talk about identity and an idea of the self over multiple selves and relationships with others and how they impact on you or don't impact on you or how you lose yourself in relationships or you lose yourself in the other. You were talking before about 
different relationships to people and where good and evil are and doing away with that New Testament fire and brimstone. There's a passage in which Guy talks about thinking of his mother and his mother has told him that all men are equally good because all men have souls and the soul was entirely good. Evil always comes from something external. And so he believed this and he believed it even when he admits that he wanted to murder Miriam's lover, Steve. And he believed it when he was reading Plato. He has realized, though, that love and hate, good and evil, lived side by side in the human heart. So he, he's like the deliverer of all these ideas that Patricia Highsmith has, I felt. All these ideas about, you know, the loss of innocence and potential that he sees earlier on with Anne. Because at some point he says, where is the green vine, Anne, as we saw love in our youth? You know, he has to grow up. And in growing up, in a very brutal way, obviously, he realises that everybody contains this good and evil. It's a question of which one I suppose is at the forefront or, or what is it that unleashes the evil in somebody. They remain questions. At, at one point he even says that he was like Bruno and surely he should have known this about himself and he had merely to crush the other part of himself and live in the self that he was now. So he goes on with this inner turmoil quite a lot and he can't resolve it and his desire to simplify everything just makes it more complicated. In fact, I think that goes right to the end. He talks about law and society and the absurdity of the law killing you if you kill somebody. Do as we say, not as we do kind of thing. But then he thinks, but if society is people and I'm people and you're people and we don't mind, then maybe the law shouldn't mind. What's the law anyway? My point here is just to say that I felt I had to let go of Guy as a plausible person and let it be Patricia Highsmith exploring all these sort of ideas that she has, including the ideas around Plato. I, I'm not sure exactly what part of Plato she's referring to, but I think it might be that we as humans play out different characters, different people, different relationships, and that all changes, whereas there are these underlying structures that probably located more in a sort of logical field or fields of mathematical logic. I thought about that totally differently. The role that we have as individuals in society and the absurdity of the law, it's, a, it's kind of condensed and paraphrased. And Guy's naive, unworldly wiseness. You know what? I can totally believe that. Although he is spectacularly dumb for an architect and very unemotionally engaged and intellectually unaware. So I read it, I read that differently. I thought, I'm not huge on symbolism, but I thought he represents a kind of morality. He has an ability to shut down things that he's not interested in, which are like maybe serious. And he focuses on ideas almost as pure ideas. And I think that's where Plato comes in, partially because of platonic and a way to show that guy is like aspirational. Like he reads freaking Plato. He's had that book for a long time. It's one of his most cherished possessions. Of course, he leaves it behind. So it's really, we know, it's just a MacGuffin. It's a way to get them connected, yeah. for them to stay connected. It's the same as the lighter in the film. It's like, it's an object that kind of drives behavior, but it doesn't really do anything other than that. That's its role for existing in the narrative. And Guy, I know the passage you're referring to when he talks about, like, I am like Bruno, but I've kind of killed that part of myself off. He clearly has. They're the same person, aren't they? And... You know, the, the complexity of the self, I think, is what she's talking about there. And the potential for any of us, I mean, it talks about this multiple times, any of us to kill anyone at any time, and that our animalness is something that we, we deny. You could look at the book like this. Guy is fighting for survival, and he's caught in this trap because he's, he's like a social creature, and he's a well-to-do guy. So he doesn't just kill Bruno right away, which would be the kind of the easiest way to solve everything is just to kill him. Or better yet, just go to the cops, you know? When he discovered Miriam's death, he should have just gone to the cops, but he didn't. And he's kind of, he's trapped in this doing the right thing, not doing the right thing, doing the right thing, not doing the right thing. 
Whereas Bruno was kind of free of that. Bruno doesn't give a shit. He cares about God, but Bruno doesn't care about doing the right thing or the wrong thing in terms of the mores of society that he's involved in. All he wants is a friend. <laughs> all he wants, well, all he wants is a, is a lover. All he wants is that intimacy, that depth of relationship, that you know, that spiritual connection or whatever, whatever it is. That's what he wants, and he almost doesn't care about anything else or how he gets that. Whereas Guy also wants that too, but he's a little bit more concerned with how he gets it and what it means and where it gets him as a person. Bruno doesn't have what Guy has, and Guy doesn't have what Bruno has. Guy wants money and prestige and social a social position in the film and book. Senator's daughter, architect. And Bruno has social position and money, but is powerless because he has no prestige. And so back to trying to think, why is Guy such a dolt? <laughs> because he recognizes that. He knows that he kind of needs Bruno, even though he can't articulate that. And I think that's what those passages where he's talking about being confused a little bit about his identity, I think that's really what that's about. It's like expressing his own kind of confusion and his frustration of not really understanding himself as much as he could. I also get the impression that they uh, both equally love and loathe one another. Well, I mean, that's the thing that the movie takes away entirely, except for Bruno. There's, Bruno is... You know, he's flamboyant. The first shot we see Bruno is up his shoes. And his shoes are, like, outrageous. And we identify Bruno through his clothes and his ostentatiousness, his tie, his shirt and stuff. So I think in the movie, we still understand that Bruno has an affection for God, which is really different than the book. Because the book, two or three places, it says, I'm treating him like my lover, or kind of bought presents for him as if he were my date. He could be my wife, or something like that. And Bruno, in the in the film, but definitely more in the book, Guy is macho and Bruno is not. And again, you know, to locate that just after the war, an idea of the the heroic and the, the patriarchal and the male is so dominant and oppressive. And I think you're right. I think they are really different aspects of the same person. And this was a time when psychoanalysis and Freud came to the fore. And I understand that Patricia Highsmith, very much like Alfred Hitchcock, was very interested in this psychoanalytic way of thinking and this multiplicity within the same person. And what I found interesting but also odd was at one point Anne is baiting Bruno and saying people, feelings, everything, double, two people in each person. There's also a person exactly the opposite of you, like the unseen part of you, somewhere in the world, and he waits in ambush. And that's almost Bruno, really, waiting in ambush to get Guy. And I thought it was odd coming from her, though, because she seems very aloof and very untouched. And at one point, Guy breaks down in tears and she touches his shoulder and says, shall I fix us some breakfast? <laughs> and I thought that was so like, you know, keep calm and carry on. Or in Australia, it would be, you'll be right, mate. Uh, is there an American equivalent of that? Keep your problems to yourself, Paul. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I know the thing that you're talking about with Anne. I find her as problematic as Guy in terms of her credibility. Because she's an independent designer. And Guy at one point talks about her talent in the book. And he's clearly jealous of her talent. But he doesn't recognize that to a degree in himself. She says to Guy at one point, you know, you can actually be happy. I read that as like yeah. she's given him permission yeah. to be happy. You're choosing to be miserable, yeah. buddy. I read it like that as well. Because, you know, in the same way that Bruno, after his father is dead, he's no happier. In fact, he ups his drinking, which leads to his own death. And same with Guy, you know, his his career takes off straight away, but then it becomes... He loses the big job that he, he that he's going to get Miriam yeah. killed for. And then he gets another, he gets another, the hospital, he gets another big job. But that's one of the things that she does so well, Patricia Highsmith, that she makes us aware of stuff that her characters aren't aware of in their psychological makeup. Even though we're seeing these people from their own points of view, we're also outside of them, and she kind of tells us that. I think what's really troubling about the book and the film is, and I know that it's 1950, 1951, 
uh, the affluence and the wealth and the expectation of affluence and the expectation of wealth, I found that so kind of repellent in both of them. Of course, if there's a moral, there's no moral. If there's a moral in this immoral morality tale, then it's that money doesn't buy you happiness and money doesn't provide you with what you need. And that's like, that's the constant all the way through. Yet, the big dilemma that culture, my culture, is founded on this idea of wealth and prosperity and acquisition of material goods, but that doesn't get you anywhere in terms of who you are as a person. It doesn't make you feel better. In fact, it makes you feel worse because Guy and Bruno, they have everything. They both of them have everything, but neither of them are satisfied with what they have. So in a way, it's a very early idea of the falseness uh, or the failure of the great American dream that, you know, Jonathan Franzen and Chums write about, that there's this great aspiration and we all need to move on and get up the ladder, but actually they're up the ladder and they just <laughs> fall, fall down from it. I think that that's definitely in the film, for sure. I think that Hitchcock as a foreigner would have seen all that and he, you know, came from Leighton or Leightonstone, so he wasn't in a wealthy background himself. And so he would have benefited from the materially driven capitalist system of the States and Hollywood, but he's always been critical of that, I think, too. I think in the book, I think she is talking about the emptiness of possessions and the emptiness of materiality, but I think she's also talking about the dominance more than that or within that she's talking about the dominance of patriarchy and the difficulty of difference in that time period because you know in the book he's different and his difference is really denigrated there's no place for bruno in guy's society and even though socially bruno is above guy bruno doesn't belong even though it's cruel and even though it's pretty horrible it's beautifully made the book it's really beautifully put together. There's some really powerful things said in it in a way that is challenging. And at the time, it must have been a bit of a scandal. You know, if divorce was such a big deal, then getting together with somebody to murder your wife <laughs> would have probably been pretty shocking. And I think also yeah, people's yeah, understanding yeah. of crime and that, I love my country, I'll just preface what I'm about to say with that. But if you think about our response to 9-11 and how surprised and shocked we were the way the others saw us can you imagine in 1951 how blind america must have been then because we just won the war you know we just ended the world we just saved the planet it was pretty much what people thought so divorce and murdering your friend's partner so he murders your dad that's pretty extreme just then you were talking about things uh not as they appear and I was thinking about the bigger perspective of the book is who constitutes a stranger and the stranger within us and how do we know anyone? How do we know ourselves? And that does bring me to your work. Finally. A paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite thinking of it like that, but I was thinking of that sort of internal struggle of good and evil in a piece <laughs> like Blackout. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I was laughing just because I've never thought about uh, my work in terms of good and bad, good and evil and stuff like that. I mean, a little bit, but not quite like that. I mean, what I like about the book and about the film is that it does not reduce good and evil to simple things. They're not black and white. It's not clear cut. It's very gray. Those really big ideas are impossible. And I, I like that a lot. No, not not that now is the time to spend doing it, but there almost needs to be other words for those ideas because those ideas of good and evil get located too easily in very easy buckets. I agree, but I think now is the perfect time to just dispense with all that crap because if some of us are really talking about a restructuring, a reordering, that at the very root of a large part of our culture, our society in the UK and within America and Australia, in these religious and Christian-oriented countries. Good and evil is at the heart of all that. We've confused law with good and evil and right and wrong. And you know, we, we throw these phrases and these ideas around in a pretty dangerous way. All I got to do is listen to Trump for 30 seconds. You know, yeah. He's always talking about that stuff, even if he's not using those words. That's what he's talking about. Looking at values about the complexity of humanity and not reducing them to simple ideas of good and evil 
is an imperative thing that we should be doing because if we do that, then that leads to the abolition of prisons and defunding the police because all of that is built on ideas of good and evil and righteousness and I'm better than you and I, I do the right thing and you do the wrong thing. So even though I laugh about these things in lots of ways, I'm still surprised in 2020 that we're having to talk about this kind of stuff, you know? And that we're still having to deal with these really horrible ideas that seem to permeate our culture all the time. We do simplify this idea of good and evil and good people and bad people. And we are all good and we are all bad, you know? <laughs> Each of us have varying degrees at various seconds in the day. Sorry, I know I took a detour there, but... That was a very worthwhile detour. Now let's get back to Blackout, but first, I'll very briefly describe the work. Blackout is essentially a woman who's struggling with her alcoholism, and she talks about, particularly from the ages of, I think it's 15 to 21, she spends an enormous amount of time blacking out, and gets to the point where she is drinking beer for breakfast, and blacking out at breakfast, and the film seems to be located at a time in her life where she has realized she is a struggling alcoholic and she's trying not to drink but then she's taking other things instead you know you could almost say that the bruno part is the alcohol or the addiction but there's definitely an internal struggle going on with that character what were you going to say about that piece strangers on train definitely talks about this our snap judgments because Strangers on the Train is nothing about, if it's not about judgment, right? So Guy immediately judges Bruno, and we're aware of that. You said yeah. that before. And in the film, you know, we judge Bruno, the audience judges Bruno right away, by the way, he looks and style of dress. And so often I'm trying to interrupt that judgment or to establish something and then create some kind of rupture. So the participant in Blackout, she'd actually been sober for two years when we met in 2014. And that was recorded over three different sessions. Each one was about two and a half hours long. Obviously, I've chosen to only say a certain amount about her in that 11-minute film. So that's why the drug taking is really important because it's very easy to dismiss her because of what she says and to feel all kinds of pity for her because of her experience of the world. But I, I don't feel comfortable with any of that stuff at all because it's an oversimplification of somebody even though I'm reducing what they've said, which could be argued is an oversimplification in itself, and of course it is. But I don't want my oversimplification to be about judgment. I want my oversimplification to be about complexity. You know, you were saying before about how a guy talks about the various selves. So thinking blackout, you know, we think, what a waste of your youth, you know, to a point. She's incredibly self-aware and really perceptive and super bright. And when she starts talking about drugs, I see that as being, probably said a lot about me, as something that's really empowering because she says, I don't want to be defined by my problems. I have a problem with alcohol. I don't have a problem with these other things. And I don't have other, other things in my life that are that problematic. And so that kind of defiance and that kind of assertion of the self is really important to me and is something that very interested in as an artist and as a person. So yes, it's quite emotional and challenging that film, but even though it's emotionally challenging, I, I think it's a fair portrait of the discipline and I think that it's a complex portrait of what it means to be alive. I felt there was a different sort of sympathy or empathy with gender sick. So gender sick, just very briefly, is a woman struggling with her physicality. And she, in some way, wants to transcend her body. The, they're, they're both anonymous, actually, both in Gender Sick and in Blackout. In Gender Sick, the narrator is they, and they're agender yeah. and asexual. I was completely taken with this Gender Sick person's ideas. I don't have any of those anxieties that the narrator is talking about. But this idea of... Wanting to find a love that transcends the body, that's so overwhelming, that exists outside the body. I actually thought that was really beautiful. 
there is a song called Extreme Love by Holly Hendren, and a child narrates this text through a really extreme sound in the background about a naturally decentralized alien that populates through us sharing bacteria. The child is saying that they might carry something of us as a parasite into the future. Existence is no longer enclosed in the body. We are not a collection of individuals, but a microorganism living as an ecosystem. We are completely outside ourselves, and the world is completely inside us. Is this how it feels to become the mother of the next species? And I was thinking of that song when I was watching Gender Sick. I thought it was really quite inspiring, actually. Even though the person was having these awful anxieties about being sick of gender, just get rid of gender, I hate body hair, I don't want anything to do with my vagina, I don't want anything to do with sex, I don't want anything to do with my body, I have an eating disorder, now that I'm down to skin and bones I'm really quite happy because I don't want to take up much room, you know that was really sad. But the idea of having this, when you say a rebellious streak in Blackout, of having this idea that there might be something amazing that's completely different to what we're imagining or what is the acceptable norm, I just thought was fantastic. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I think they're both saying the same thing, just in different ways. But then I would say that. You would say that because? <laughs> well, because I want them to do that. <laughs> Is this where we come into this idea for you of portraiture and self-portraiture? Because you obviously make conscious decisions of how you're editing these. You're not just letting people talk and say anything they want. No, just the opposite of that, in fact. I am interested in portraiture. The first thing I do whenever I'm working with somebody after the recording process has happened is I remove myself from the narrative. And it's, it, the situation is totally similar to this. In fact, it's exactly the same. We're having a casual conversation about art. And that's what I do with participants, is I have a com casual conversation, or hopefully multiple casual conversations over a significant period of time. If it's an ideal scenario, then I, d I don't really go back into that material for a little while. And then I structure something. I find a structure from what people have said. Sometimes I then go back and start talking to people again. It just depends if I have that opportunity. And I let people say what I want them to say. So I guess in a sense it is portraiture in that regard. That's an interesting contradiction though, isn't it? I let people say what I want them to say. Well, a portrait is only what the artist is showing you anyway. So I don't think it's any different than that. Or a documentary, you know, we're only seeing what the people want us to see. What I like about Strangers on a Train is it is a portrait of a time, and it talks about the complexity of that and the lack of singularity of point of view. It talks about the complexity of personality and perception and how we are perceived and how we're different with different people. And so, portraiture, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it is that, but it's also not that. You know, the work is really, really constructed. It's as much self-portraiture as it is portraiture, I guess or that narrative for Veil. It's almost a complete construction, I don't know. Yeah, so Trish, she's responding to a pornographic film, and I, I was messing around with that, trying to make it less narrative and more poetic, and just a bunch of ideas. Yeah, because that's what she throws out, which is great. She, at one point, talks about desire, sin, deviancy, perversion, power, dominant sex, orgasm, pleasure, intimacy, mischief, intoxication. You're like, yeah! All of these things. Yeah, but... She never said them in that order, nor in that way. You know, I like it when people know that it's constructed, because then, then they're actually maybe aware of the work. I think that's where the art is. Some of it is in the construction of a believable narration that sounds like someone's just talking to you. And that's where the artifice exists, because that's not what transpired. It's just like this, with us interrupting and talking yeah. over each other in a natural, conversant manner. But I'm going to manipulate this later. You can do anything you want. Don't make me sound like a Trump <laughs> supporter. You know, the participants in, in the editing suite, they're never there. But they're there in my mind, knowing that I've got to show this work to them. And that they've, got to kind of, yeah. they've got to be okay with seeing it and it going into the world. I show people what I'm doing. Uh, I talk to them about what I would like to do with them. Not a million miles away from how you've approached me, actually. Very similar. 
here's here's what I've been doing. This is my set of ideas. What do you think? I want people to get interested in the process and to feel like it's something that they want to be involved in. And then I show them the work. And then they either hate it or they hate it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sebastian Horsley, who was featured in the Dandy Doctrine, he didn't like your recording. I mean, he says at the start of his piece, or your piece that he's in, you're going to make me look beautiful, right? It was complicated working with Sebastian. Obviously, he's no longer walking the earth, so I'm yeah. reluctant to speak ill of the dead. But it's not that he didn't like the film. He didn't like what he saw yeah. of himself in the film. At that time in his life, he was saying to people that he was sober, but he wasn't. Yeah. And I didn't know that. So Sebastian and I would meet at 9 o'clock on a Friday morning, and we would have lengthy, lucid conversations and not, not once did I ever think he was wasted. Not once. I'm not saying this from a judgmental position. And then I showed him the film. And he, what he didn't like was that he saw himself be high. It wasn't yeah. obvious to me. And he didn't stop me from trying to exhibit the film at all. But we had mended our fences before he went on to wherever he went on to, which I'm, yeah. I'm glad about because... I mean, he was so hyper-image aware. Everything was about surface and image. So I can imagine him being very sensitive to how he appeared. He didn't mind the portrayal of the film at all. Yeah. The portrayal of himself in the film, because like you say, he was always on show. And what a show. He was, he was great. He's a smart guy, so super bright guy. And a lot of fun to be around. Uh, we go along yeah. really well. I'm going to read a little tiny bit from the book. This is page one, chapter one, paragraph one, sentence one. The train tore along with an angry, irregular rhythm. It was having to stop at smaller and more frequent stations where it would wait impatiently for a moment, then attack the prairie again. But progress was imperceptible. The prairie was only undulated like a vast pink tan blanket being casually shaken. What I thought about that was there's this proleptic personification of the train. It's angry, it's impatient, it's going to attack the prairie. So something innate becomes alive and it sets the scene, in my view, for you're in for a thrill of a ride. In fact, I wonder, now that I just think about it, just this moment, if... That's what Hitchcock was playing on for the pivotal scenes to be at the fun fair, because up to page about 100, where Bruno has finally murdered Miriam, I did think it was a bit of a ride. And it had me thinking about that blackness that you start a lot of your films with. And then there's a sort of lagging voiceover. The voiceover doesn't start straight away. It's quite mysterious. I don't know what we're in for. So how are you making decisions about the start, the premise? The way I approach making work is I try and fail, but I try to make things different than things before. My aspiration is to make something feel different and to be different each time. And there are some rules or a kind of a structural thing that I try to create or force onto a set of ideas. And... The black thing that you're talking about. So there's two reasons for that. Um, one is technical and one is conceptual. And they're not separate, those things, I don't think. You can separate them out too much in life or in artworks. So technically, I often have more audio than, than visual material. So how do you reduce something? Because I'm also trying to generally very generally, I'm trying to have the least amount of information say the most. So I want the work to be very minimal, I mean completely minimal in what it is doing and how it exists in the world, but I want what it does to be impactful and to be meaningful. So I often wrestle with this thing which is having lots of audio and not much visual material, so the black thing it can work sometimes is to punctuate absence or fill in the gaps. That's like a technical reason, but it's so difficult to explain. But the audio material and the visual material have a relationship. They work. I'm hoping that they work in concert with each other. 
maybe against each other too, simultaneously. But I don't want the visuals to be an illustration of the audio. And I also don't want it to somehow represent what is being said. So I'm trying to find a different space for the visual material. Additionally, I guess I'm trying to, it's really difficult to use these words, but I'm trying to create kind of a mood or an atmosphere or a set of feelings in addition to what is being said or what is being shown. Because my experience of the world is I often don't feel one thing. I feel lots of things happening at once. My difficulty on a personal level is to separate them out or to try to understand them because there's lots happening at once. So I want the work to kind of have that, not necessarily confusion, but layered quality to it. So I want it to be doing a lot of different things at once while it looks quite simple. That's the easiest way to say that. You talk about the visuals, and I think we get an interesting play in the visual, for instance, in Gender Sick, where when the person is not talking, it's a tree branch sort of shaking slightly in the wind. It looks quite fragile. And then when the person's talking, almost like technology is responding to the person talking, there's a sort of haphazard light show that goes on. I'm really pleased to hear haphazard because it's so orchestrated and it's so particular and edited. I don't want it to feel as constructed as it is. In, in a perfect world, the work kind of just flows through you and over you and around you. It hits you and it, it just hits you. And so I don't want you to really be thinking too much of the construction. And if you have been thinking about the construction, unless I'm pointing you to that, then there's a problem with the work, I think. So uh, haphazard and is great because I want it to feel out of control. I want it to feel liberated and free. That look is because they say, the participant says in the in the work that you know motion is freedom and that they would fly and And interestingly they use the word zooming i want to zoom there you go it's proleptic of zooming (laughs) (laughs) i just think that participant has an amazing vocabulary and a really incredible way with language because when they're talking they they speak real fast and then they get more agitated or more excited or more expressive depending on what they're saying as as the work continues so I wanted the the bushes, the trees. I wanted it to be kind of anxious and on edge. It's actually time-lapse during the day. And it's also long exposures through a dark filter so that you, that blurring occurs. I'd like to shift on to talking about how you formulate your ideas. Yesterday I watched a documentary about Robert Mapplethorpe and he had a great reveal of his work, which was that I'm not setting out to make a statement. A statement comes out of what I do. So he he will take a whole lot of shots and then he will decide, okay, this somehow this has meaning, this shot, but he may or may not know what that meaning is, but he knows that's the shot. I would say that, yeah, a little bit of that. For me, but I don't know what I'm doing, but I kind of know it when I find it. But I also know that's not entirely true, in that there are some boundaries around not knowing what I'm doing. So like there'll be like an idea or the kernel of an idea. So like the sun always shines on the righteous, it's quite, it's a really old work. But with that, I had an expectation of what I might find and what I might see. But I also knew that my expectation of what I might find or what I might see had to be uh, overcome (laughs) and because like in recording I'm just trying to gather as much as I can I try not to intervene too much at that stage I ask questions I see the questions as an opening to something somebody asked me recently like how did you get people to say that and I was I was so surprised by that question because I would never dream of trying to get anybody to say anything I kind of know what I'm looking for a little bit, but I have to let go of that. And I have to be open to what happens and allow allow it to become itself, which is what I think he is saying to, to an extent. I do try to let the material speak to me to an extent, as ridiculous as that sounds, but it's not the only voice. So in my orbit, the things that I, I kind of satellite around are ideas about the body and 
who we are, what we are, and why we are. And I think that, you know, those big questions, we were just asking them about good and evil on so many different levels every day. We're all, we're all asking those questions. And I think that's great. So I'm interested in those questions, and I'm interested in that there are no answers. You know, and a mystery is a powerful thing, as it should be. Ah, oh, have you seen the Midnight Gospel? It's one of those things when you watch it. When I watched it, I just thought, oh, I wish I'd been a part of this. I wish I'd been a, had, a, had some part of me that was involved in making this. It's an animation. It's a cartoon that's just come out. It's on Netflix. It's based on real conversations. It's based on podcasts. It kind of semi-animates the podcast. So it's two people having a conversation about what it means to be alive. And I think there's, I don't know how many episodes there are. I still haven't watched the last episode because I don't want it to end. They are breathtakingly excellent. They are so great. It's one of the best things I've seen in years and years and years. And I'm not alone in thinking this. I love that. I'm going to look that up and put it in the notes for this podcast. You so yeah. should, because the thing is, there's no conclusions. Let's talk about other artists. Oh, that, yeah, please. Let's do that. But we're still talking about you. Michael Stipe spoke of Patti Smith's debut album, Horses. He said, it tore my limbs off and put them back on in a whole new order. And Patti Smith was also a big influence on you. Can you talk about that? Listening to Horses, it's such a cliche. For me, it was, I'll never forget um, hearing it for the first time. And I don't know if it tore off my limbs and put them back in a different way. It confirmed what I already knew, was that there was a different world out there, there was a bunch of different people, and I wanted to hang out with them and be in their world. Yeah, I didn't yeah, belong yeah. in the one that I was in at all, and I hadn't seen a way out before. I've, ne- I've never articulated that like that until yeah. just now, but I realized that, that that was very true for me. Just going back for a moment to your process, there's a very manual, physical side to the making of the work, The Last Walk. There's a man who's going for a walk and somebody who sets himself on fire. I, I, think, I think you took the film and scrunched it up in a bucket or something like that. It's exactly what I did. It's hand-processed 16mm film. I was exper- I had done that maybe I was trying to teach myself how to do it so I I think I had that with my third attempt they can only make things look a certain way there's not too much variation yeah. so I got very excited about doing this really really complex process to discover that I was just repeating myself <laughs> and so in that sense you have something of a synergy with Jennifer West she's a person of interest yeah I hadn't thought about that. I like Jennifer West's work a lot. I like that. I like the direct process of her work, but I also like the conceptual narrative elements of it and the unpredictability of it. I think that is really exciting. I'm just going to describe two of her pieces very quickly. One of them is called Whatever, and it's a 16 millimeter film leader soaked in coffee, espresso, turmeric, taken on a power walk, rubbed with sweat, inscribed with the word whatever written in purple metallic eyeliner and another one is popped cherry where she stains the film with cherry juice and pops it with a hole punch so she is very much using that physical process and it's a bit hard to know what it's going to look like but it also has a story behind it uh, for her in fact actually when you're talking about jennifer's work uh, and also scrunching up the film, what's that going to look like? These processes that you're talking about are so similar to making a painting or making a sculpture. It's almost like you just happen to be working in film. What is it about film? I'm interested in narrative, interested in stories. I'm interested in unusual stories. I'm interested in the way that we tell stories, not just stories in themselves, but how we express ourselves and what that means. How can stories... How can experiences be expressed, be told, be shared? How can they be different to speak about their difference? Stories, books and writers. I understand that Roxane Gay is an interesting writer for you. What's great about her work is she writes fiction, she writes memoirs, she writes 
journalistic pieces she writes really personally and really deeply yeah. personally and really universally. She has no fear. I'm sure she's petrified. She expresses no fear. Or when she does express fear, it's fearless in itself. And I think she's incredibly talented too. Her voice is, is definitely an important voice, definitely for my country, if not the world too, because she's smart as fuck and eloquent as hell and very funny. Can I swear on this? I'm so sorry. It's too late now. Yes. I'm from a swearing country, so you're just not allowed to say unprecedented. Okay. So one of the books that Roxane Gay has written was Difficult Women, about how women who make change are not necessarily nice and all those cliches that women, the box that women are supposed to sit in. And it did remind me of Patricia Highsmith, of course, because she is so criticised and she she criticizes herself. She, there's a diary entry in 1970 where she says, I am now cynical, fairly rich, lonely, depressed, and totally pessimistic. But she does sound to me like, at least at the sober end of the evening, I want her at my dinner table. The thing is, I, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. It couldn't have been easy. I, you know, I know that Strangers on a Train has some cruelty to it. She's totally equal in her cruelty. Everybody is treated with the same level of cruelty. Probably also to herself, I'd say. Absolutely. I was just going to say, again, you know, putting it in context, and Patricia Highsmith couldn't have been easy to be her as a person in the world yeah. in the late 40s, early 50s, as a very young literary star from a challenging environment, a conventional, traditional environment. What do you mean, the fact that she's from Texas? Uh, I really like Fort Worth. It's a great place. I've had great experiences there. I've had yeah. big, profound experiences there. Texas is very religious, I'll just say that. Saying that, speaking to an Australian person in London, sounds uh, is an oversimplification because what that means is that religion is in every molecule of every person's being in their growing up. It's And still today, it's a really, really religious environment. Everything is equated to having religious connotations and interpreted and understood through religion and not just Christianity. So anyway, so it couldn't have been easy being her. It couldn't have been easy being her at that time. I have a lot of empathy for her because she must have been so smart and she probably didn't get along with people because they didn't like that. And yeah. she probably didn't shut up all that much or as much as she was expected to. And good for her. Who's to say what that meant to her or what that felt like? She did some amazing things with her life and she created some fantastic work. I'm not saying that excuses her for being a jerk or anything like that, but I'm just saying that it's complicated. The people that talked about her do talk hand in hand. You know, she, she was depressed and rude and rough and difficult and angry, but she was also dryly very funny. And then you get this contrasting story. This is the only female I've found who mentions her, and I'm sure there are others, but the screenwriter Phyllis Nagy, Nagy, N-A-G-Y, who adapted The Price of Salt to the... 2015 film Carol said that Highsmith was very sweet and encouraging to her as a young writer as well as wonderfully funny and they remain friends till Patricia Highsmith's death so maybe it is also partly the lens that you're looking through in terms of expectation. That's what I mean about the complexity is like she probably was drunk miserable and cynical and depressed but that doesn't yeah, mean yeah. that she wasn't a lovely person. <laughs> Also, like when you write something down and somebody else reads it, they're not hearing it how it's written. They're just reading it as it's written. And I'm sure that maybe Patricia Highsmith was probably laughing and crying when she wrote that. All we're reading are the tears. We're not reading the laughs. That's true. We're going to finish up. But I do want to come back in finishing up to Roxanne Gay. And I found this wonderful little film of her. She was invited by MoMA to choose something from the collection. And she chose Kara Walker's Christ's Entry into Journalism. Great title. Which is great. That's just as a title. Without even seeing it, you think, I, well, I think, I love it already. And Roxanne Gay described this as Kara Walker 
has managed in a series of figures to depict the whole of African-American history on one canvas. And it's all bodies in motion. It's all bodies subjected to the whims of others. For those who don't know Carol Walker's work, she is very interested in the imagery of black slavery in America. You can still see Carol Walker's work in the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern. Yes, until November 2020. So in this work as well, Roxanne Gay says, I really love this and I thought of you as soon as she said it. This is not a piece that wants to be contained and I don't think its meaning can be contained either. I think that's certainly what I try to do as a writer. Like if you can summarise what I've done in one neat and tidy sentence, then I have failed. And I thought of you when I when she said that. I thought of this idea of a sort of complexity. You kind of unravel your characters, the narrators of your film, although you are the umbrella narrator, of course, because you're editing what they're saying. But it's almost like the more we know about them, the less we understand them or, or something. As you say, we have to accept this sort of complexity within one person, these different aspects within one person. So would you agree with Roxanne's idea that you would not want your work to be summarised in one neat, tidy sentence? I totally agree with what she said. Knowing her work professionally and on Twitter, she's different on Twitter than she is in her books. What I like about her a lot is that she's not just one thing. She doesn't write just memoirs. She doesn't write just articles. She doesn't write just reviews. She doesn't write just fiction. On Instagram, she cooks and her food looks amazing. She's really amazing at a lot of different things. And it's driven by her thinking and her response to the world and her understanding of certain experiences and ideas, but also her knowledge and her acquisition of knowledge. And she's able to intermingle those two things in, a, in an unbelievably eloquent and often very funny, real direct manner. And I admire that endlessly. She, you said it yourself. She was able to say something really complex, very layered in a pretty simple way in a very nuanced way. And that is immensely skillful and just potent and powerful. And I just and it resonates with me. Absolutely, because you were saying before, you know, that I want to be able to say the most complex thing in the most minimal way. What are you reading now? Well, I just finished Strangers on a Train. It's a good book. Should we talk about it? <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. I often read many things at once, depending on where I'm at. Sometimes I just, I will jump from one book to another or one article from another, and then I'll find something I'll just read that straight through. In work, artwork, research thing, I'm reading about, I had been reading a lot about dreams, and that came from reading about these case studies of reincarnation in children in psychiatric journals, that kind of stuff. And I'm just about to read some other things about the location of the soul outside of the body, which is how scientists describe ideas of reincarnation or astral projection or all those kinds of things. This morning, I got a Critical Path by Buckminster Fuller. He was an architect and uh, made the first geodesic dome. Critical Path is Buckminster Fuller's masterwork, the summing up of a lifetime's thought and concern, as urgent and relevant today as it was upon its initial publication. Critical Path details how humanity found itself in its current situation at the limit of the planet's resources and facing... See, my voice changes there. Yeah. <laughs> at the limit of the planet's resources and facing political, economic, environmental, and ethical crisis. So it was originally published in 81. Okay. I'm glad it's a masterwork. And I also am reading... Um, Twitter? Yeah, that's not really reading. That's just no. looking. It's great for reportage. You know, this morning in London, yesterday in America, tomorrow yeah. in Australia. It's like, it's amazing for the transmission of things that are happening. Let's go back to retro. Let's go back to books. Uh, I read like Stephen King. He's really interesting on Twitter. Yeah? Yeah. You look totally repulsed by my... I watched a series that he he did recently. I was so profoundly disappointed with the end. It was all wrapped up. It all tied up in the end with a loyalty, I felt, more to his writing repertoire than it did to the story. Essentially, it was about him. 
And I, I had invested a lot of time in that. I want that back. See, I, I often, with his books, most of his books, I don't finish them because I, I really hate the supernatural. But what I like about him is that the way that he writes about childhood and adolescence is really incredible. Yeah. And really, yeah. and even like at whatever, however old he is now, in his 70s, he still is able to do that. And he's surprisingly very anti-Trump. And so like a lot of his followers, he doesn't really care, you know, obviously he doesn't need to care, but I think he's, he's taking a few risks. Jordan, you have a piece of work currently on iPlayer and where else are we going to see your work in the next 12 months or so? Uh, actually, who knows? Because who knows what's going to happen? Somewhere online. Online, yeah. In January, there will be a piece of work that we're delivering online. I don't know how to say it. That we're showing online. It's been made with Matt's Gallery in a place called the Nerve Centre in Derry in Northern Ireland. There will be a couple of events around that. And sorry, <clears throat> there's going to be some panel discussion or presentations related to the work. We don't have, I think we just settled on some dates the other day, but I don't know what they are, but in January. Okay, so we need to watch your Instagram or your Twitter or Matt's Gallery. Yeah, Matt's Gallery, not me. Before then, there's um, Televistas, which is uh, No More Ponies in, oh, okay. in the forest. And that's um, a bunch of artists have been commissioning their work in response to the idea of the picturesque. Well, we'll look out for it and I'll add that to our podcast notes as well. I've loved our conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate your interest in the work a lot. You know that I am very interested in your work, but we do have to go. Thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on Art Fictions today. I hope I made some sense. Make me sound, make me, make me look beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Nine. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gilliannight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. So anyway, I'm laughing at myself because I worry that I'm not really saying what I want to say. I do this terrible thing where I start thinking of something else while I'm talking and then I forget what I'm saying. That's all right. Me too. It's okay. You're among friends. It's okay. I do the same. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's a good call to not rush it. Yeah, I know, because I'm going to manipulate all the editing so that you say what I want you to say. There you go. Of course you are. I mean, I suppose it's that thing is that you can only ever sort of circle around the work or talk alongside it. You know?